Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you'd open up your Bibles, please, to the book of uh, Luke, the second chapter. There are only two of the four Gospels, two of the four books that give the history of our Lord during his three years of ministry here on earth. Only two of those four Gospels uh, give us anything of the story of uh, the birth of Jesus. And those two Gospels are Matthew and Luke. And listen to what Matthew has to say about it. So Matthew is one of the two that actually mentions it. And this is what Matthew says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. And that's it. That's all it says. And so really we're dependent on Luke for the account of uh, the birth of our Lord. And uh, let's read the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 1 to 7, this is the word of God, and it's eternally true. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, again we come to you knowing that this word is our life and breath, that it is our food, and we pray that you will work in our hearts so that the thoughts that we have in our hearts and the words that I speak will be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So both Matthew and Luke record that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew, after Jesus, was born in Bethlehem. And Luke, you saw that it it made note of the fact that Joseph and his espoused wife, Mary, went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. There's a lot of detail in in the book of Luke about the birth of Jesus. And if you think of all of the Gospels, all four of them having a different personality, it makes sense that the Gospel that's written by a physician is tender towards giving birth. The labor, the circumstances, the witnesses to the labor, why they were there. And so um, it's very beautiful to see Luke's compassion for women and for children. And it's not because Luke is sentimental. If anything, uh, doctors are the least sentimental among us. 
Uh, I think Adam was that way before he became a doctor. <laughs> um, but they see it all. And it's, it's not easy to be sentimental and to have to go through the suffering and pain and death that doctors always have to deal with. But here is Luke giving us a faithful record. And what, I want to start by saying something about the doctrine of Scripture. Um, as I was preparing, as usual, I read Calvin, and there has been a battle going on for the last couple of centuries at least over whether or not it's the words of Scripture that are inspired or it's the meaning behind the words. And so smart people who, who talk loudly in restaurants and use big words, you know those people? You have to go to the east side of town to find them here, <laughs> you know? But smart people think that they can take the text of Scripture and bring a knife that's very sharp down on every single word and separate the kernel of truth and the actual spelling of the word. And that sometimes the Holy Spirit, in, in, in inspiring a man to write, was incapable of overriding his stupidity or his sin. And so he used an infelicitous expression. That's how they would sort of patronize the writers of Scripture. They wouldn't say he was stupid. You know, what they would say is, it was infelicitous, right? In other words, he could have done better, but I'm not looking down on him. And as these people argue, whether it's the actual words of Scripture, the Greek and Hebrew that are inspired, or it's the concept behind the words, and sometimes the words do a good job and sometimes they don't. What inevitably they do is they call down great leaders of the church through history to be on their side. And so they will argue that Augustine didn't hold to the words being inspired themselves, but they'll never say that, they'll just imply it. And then they argue about other people, and of course Calvin is brought into the argument. And so there are actually people that would argue that John Calvin wasn't really fixated on the words. He had a larger view of Scripture than words. And it's exactly the same when the New York Times talks about a Supreme Court justice having a larger view of the Constitution. Right? Okay? You, 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 you with me? I'm looking at our budding lawyer here. Okay. Anytime you have people who say that they were obeying the text, but the spirit of the text and not the letter of the text, you should have your nose sniffing. All right? Because typically there is an ulterior motive to trying to separate yourself from, for instance, the very words of Scripture. Okay? Now, the reason I bring this up this morning, because you wouldn't think that this is a text that would cause me to preach on the inspiration of Scripture and the authority. The reason I bring this up this morning is, in this text, there are a lot of questions based upon the historical sources at the time. And so the question is, um, what tax was this? What inventory of people was this? What census? Uh, who's this Quirinius, Cyrenius? Was this Quirinius? Was Cyrenius another way of spelling Quirinius? And it goes on and on and on because it happens that we have history here that has some parallel in secular sources. And so there's all these discussions about when was this, which tax, which province, you know, 
And the thing I want you to know is that when Calvin deals with those issues in this text, Calvin is very, very concerned to give explanations about how the history you're given here by Luke the physician is superior, for instance, to the history given by Josephus, the Jewish historian. And in fact, Calvin at this point says that it's notorious that Josephus makes a lot of mistakes in his history. And so don't, don't come to the Bible with a superior attitude because you're a scholar or because you aren't. Words in Scripture matter. They matter when your mother tells you not to eat a cookie. She means not, she means eat, and she means cookie. And so if there's pie next to it, have some pie. (laughs) And if you're able to inhale a cookie... Feel free to inhale it. Now, of course, I'm making a joke because the truth is that once you know what the words mean, then you should seek to also obey the, the meaning of the words, right? You can't just claim that you're dealing with obedience if you neglect what you know your mother meant. And generally, if she says don't eat a cookie, she means don't eat a piece of that pie right next to it either. All right. Or what? Or inhale it, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't want you inhaling it either. Yeah. Now, you'll understand why I'm bringing this up a little later in the text, but I want you to know that John Calvin is not above the inspiration of the words of Scripture. And I'm not going to bother going through the questions of history this morning. Okay, I'm not going to deal with that, but I want you to know he does deal with it. And so that must give some indication of what Calvin's view of the inspiration of Scripture is. Now, the first thing I I mentioned is that both Matthew and Luke record that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, why Bethlehem? Well, (laughs) let's start with this fact. In Micah 5.2, one of the 500 prophecies of the coming Messiah that we find the rabbis pointing to in the Old Testament, one of the 500. All right, is this one from Micah, the Old Testament minor prophet, Micah 5.2. He writes, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It sounds cosmic, it is. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So, when we see in both Matthew and Luke that he's born in Bethlehem, guess what? Scripture's really obsessive about itself. And so, this was so Scripture could be fulfilled. What? Well, actually, the word Bethlehem. Okay? And this is also what you'll see. In the New Testament and the Gospels, again and again and again, it will make a point of pointing to words and saying so that Scripture will be fulfilled. And this is what we see by Jesus, and Jesus is smarter than any of you. I think. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Gordon Fee used to say, when he was pointing out that Jesus was really a man, he said, I believe so much 
that Jesus was man and God, that I believe I could beat him in a basketball one-on-one. He would say that a number of times in class. So I'm not sure how we would... I've never thought about his intelligence, which is interesting to me, maybe not to you. Now, why Bethlehem? Well, Bethlehem was the city of David. In the Old Testament, the city of David is called Jerusalem, and specifically the mountain in Jerusalem called Zion. But in the New Testament, it also refers to Bethlehem as the city of David. And the reason is that Bethlehem is the place that David was born and where he grew up. And so God had the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords born in the city of the King of Kings of the Jews. Not the King of Kings, capital K, but if you take Jesus and put him to the side, which you you generally don't want to do, all right, other than Jesus, the King of Kings was actually not Solomon, it was David. David had the heart of the people. He was the glorious King of, of the Jews. And so Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, was to be born in the city of David. Now, we don't think about this very often. Um, Why? Why don't we think about it? Well, because we're overwhelmed with the tenderness of the scene in in the manger, and we're overwhelmed with the tenderness of the sky filled with angels singing praise to Jesus and the shepherds with their sheep having such a, such a wonderful manifestation, revelation, right? But I want you to stop and think for a second. If it's important that Jesus was born in the city of David, where he was born and grew up, then we should think a little bit about David. What was that place like? Well, it was four and a half miles outside of Jerusalem. All right, so close, like uh, Bethany. Not real far. You could walk it in in a short time. Um, It also was a place where there were a lot of sheep because David grew up and the shepherds were out abiding in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks when Jesus was born. So this was a place of herdsmen and specifically of shepherds. This is the place where David wrote his psalms. All right? I'm sure many of them were composed when he was out, probably many of them at night. Under the night sky, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork day after day and night after night. You can imagine him with the sheep asleep writing that in praise to God. So here we have, and he wasn't king then. You know, you you look back at him and you say, well, that's King David. You know, he's the great psalmist. Well, actually, no, it was just this punk who all his brothers were every bit as dismissive as all the coys are of William. Okay, all right, no, not of William, of who? Yeah, William. Okay, William, it's William. (laughs) But I mean, you think of the attitude of all of Jesse's sons towards David, and you, you can see it because he's not the one that's brought in to be anointed. And so there's the punk out with the sheep. It's not a high calling. And you remember that David, when he's asked how on earth he's going to take on Goliath, do you remember what he says? He says, shoot, I can handle that. I've handled the bear and the lion. And so David's out there, and he's guarding the sheep. And he's killing dead, dead, 
the bear and the lion when they attack the sheep. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Because, again, we pass over this stuff. What does the word pastor mean? The word pastor is, is the word what? Does anybody know? No, it's not shepherd. No. No, David Canfield, you're wrong. <laughs> I've waited my whole life to say that. <laughs> no. The word pastor is the word pasture. Isn't that interesting? And so a pastor is somebody who pastures the people. That's what I'm doing. I'm feeding you. Now, if you're going to pasture your, your flock, you have to guard them so that they're safe as they eat. You can't be eating and having an argument at the table. Have you ever noticed this? It doesn't work to fight and eat at the same time. Have you noticed this? You've gone out to eat with your wife. It's going to be a nice meal, right? <laughs> And it's not, because you have to fight first, and there's the food, and there's the fight. The same thing is true of sheep. They have to be protected. And so in order for David to pasture his flock, he has to what? He has to kill the lion and the bear. Why does he have to kill the lion and the bear? Well, because the sheep can't do it. How bad off are the sheep? Well, the sheep are so bad off that they don't even know they're in danger. Isn't that a tragedy that we say all the time today? You go on to Facebook and you see a bunch of sheep blathering. And they haven't a clue of the danger involved with what they're reading and saying. They don't have a clue. And then you see a guy like, uh, uh, what's this guy? Uh, what's this guy, Acts 29, what's his name? Yeah, they, and then you see a guy like Matt Chandler talking to HBO in an interview. And it's the one thing that's absolutely clear about Matt Chandler in that interview is that he has absolutely no desire to protect the sheep from the wolves, from the bears, from the lions. Because he's just pandering to every form of wickedness in our country. And you think, what on earth is going to happen to the sheep in America if their shepherds have no desire to get bloody killing the bears and the lions? Now, have you ever thought this about being part of the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is supposed to be a shepherd of the sheep like David was. What kind of shepherd was David? Oh, he was out at night writing songs like Jake and Phil and, and Jody. And they were so uh, um, transcendent. They were so inspirational. Well, yeah. Okay, what else? Well, they killed the lion and the bear. And that's Jesus. You watch Jesus' whole life, and he never stops killing the lion and the bear. He's king of kings, lord of lords. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. And he is born in Bethlehem. And when he's born, what happens? Guess what? It's the shepherds that get the news. Don't ever demean the office of a pastor. Don't ever demean the dirty work they have to do in your life and in the life of other people. Don't ever punish them for being trying to be faithful in that work. Jesus was a shepherd, the good shepherd, okay? Now, he's born in this city with all of this, the prophecy coming from, and, and, and how is he born there? 
how on earth do you get Joseph there, you know? How do you get Mary there? Because if you're going to get Jesus there to be born, you got to get Mary there. And if you're going to get Mary there, you got to get Joseph there. And so this is really, really a complicated thing because they're up in Galilee and Nazareth. Did you hear all those unto and into and out of and therefore and, you know, it was quite the trip. Well, what you do is you relegate. Do you know the word relegate? I'm using it a lot nowadays, so you should understand that the word relegate means, you remember where uh, John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease. So relegation is when you decrease. It's when your father takes another, when your husband takes another wife, you have been relegated to his divorced wife, okay? And so what we see here is that Jesus' birth relegates David. He's no longer king of kings, lord of lords. But in the circumstances of Jesus' birth, it's not just David, King David, who's relegated. Who else is? (laughs) It's Caesar Augustus. Why? Well, because... The only reason he's there is as a footnote explaining how God got Mary and the baby and Joseph to Bethlehem. And that's all Caesar Augustus matters for the central act of history. Now, how important was Caesar Augustus? Well, if you go to Carlisle where Brian and Vivian Dalbar is missionaries, the one thing for sure they'll do is they'll walk you a couple blocks from their home and you'll look at something. What is it? Do you know? It's Hadrian's Wall. It's the Roman Wall. And if you go to look at Luther's old house and the churches he was at, you go, what will they show you? Well, they'll show you parts of the wall as you go around the sites. In other words, in Germany... And right on the border of England and Scotland. And that's the reason that it says in the text, what? It says that all the world shall be taxed. Caesar Augustus was unbelievably important. Because he was the head of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was serious business. And so Caesar Augustus thought that what he was doing was raising money so that he could govern. And so in order to do that, he has to have a record of all the individuals and of their land. And so he issues a decree, it goes through Cyrenius, and the decree is that the whole world will be taxed because he needs money. He sends out the decree across the Roman Empire, and the only reason this is in Scripture is so that you know how that woman, Mary, got into Bethlehem and gave birth. Okay? Now, if you had asked Caesar Augustus to explain what was going on at the time, what do you think Caesar Augustus would have told you? Well, he would have said, well, you understand. I mean, he would have been like Trump, you know? Well, I did this and I did that. Every sentence would begin with I. And, and he would explain the condition of the government, the need for funding. He would have gone on and on and on. And it would all have been about how the center of the universe is in Rome and him. Okay? But Luke 
relegates him. All right. It was a complicated thing. I remember talking to Jürgen from Germany a few years ago, and he was explaining to me what was going on with uh, Greece at the time. And he knows the economists in Europe, and Greece was on the verge, on, on the verge of bankruptcy. And he was explaining to me that all of the people that talked about the meetings they were having with Greece and how it looked hopeful were blowing smoke. And he said, it doesn't look hopeful. They just go in these private meetings and they talk to each other. And, and then they come out and tell everybody that they made these agreements and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. But he says, it's just a bunch of baloney. He didn't use the word baloney. But I said, well, give me an example of what they say when they come out. And he said, well, for instance, that when they come out, they say that they're going to, uh, they're going to begin to tax the land. But he said they can't tax the land until they actually have a record of the ownership of the land. In order to get a record of the ownership of the land, we had the same problem in Germany when we reunited with East and West Germany. He said in West Germany, we had a record. East Germany, there's no record of the ownership of the land. And so what we had to do is produce a record of who owned the land. And then he said, and, and you know, that took us 10 years And then he said, and we're German. <laughs> I don't know if he was saying anything about Greeks. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> this is a similar thing to what Caesar Augustus is doing. He needs to raise money. And to do that, he has to have everybody go back. And what we think, we don't know this, but what we think is that Joseph being from the lineage of David that Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because we think that he had some land there and that that really was his homeland. Why he lived in Nazareth and Galilee, we don't know. But anyhow, he had to go back. He had to go back to this home territory. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Why all the world when, when there were undoubtedly people living outside of Hadrian's Wall? Well, because every empire thinks they're the whole world, you know? That's what, you know, that's why all the people in the UK are still angry, <laughs> you know? Because they've lost the world, you know? They own the whole world, and now it's gone. Sorry, if any of you are Brits. <laughs> Okay. Verse 2, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed. And then it says, everyone into his own city. And I mentioned why we think that uh, Joseph went to Bethlehem. We think he probably owned land there. Verse 4 says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And That was probably about 90 miles away. It was about a three-day journey. And then this little parenthetical statement, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And I want to make a note about this, because, again, it's important that we learn the meanings of the words of Scripture. Now, what are the Greek words behind the English here? So you know that the Bible was written in, should I say, two or three? three languages. It's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. 
okay? Several places. Best known would be Abba Father, Abba. Um, so David, I mean, not David, and so um, Luke, writing here, here's what he writes, because he was of the oikos and patria of David. That's what the Greek is, and I'm just pronouncing it. The oikos and patria of David. Now, first, oikos. It's translated house. It's a good translation. Generally, you want to use the word in English that corresponds to the Greek word. You should laugh. I mean, that's what a translator is supposed to do, unless it's an obstacle. And the obstacle should be, well, anyhow. Oikos is the word that we get our word economics from. And so another way of saying economics would be oikonomics. So it's household. So economics is the study of, how would you say it, Eric? Running a household. And the household can be micro, and it can be macro. The household can be the nation. The household can be a city. The household can be a church. The household can be one individual who lives alone but it's the running of a household. That's economics. Oikonomics. Now, what's the second word? The second word is patria. We all know what that is. The best known example of that word in Scripture is in Ephesians 3 where it says, Paul is speaking, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every patria in heaven and earth gets its name. Now, it's translated family. But you know the word patria, you know. How do you know it? Well, because you know the word patriarch. You know the, the word patriarchy. You know the word patriotism. You know the word patriotic. You know the word father. And you say, oh, got you there. That's not Greek. And I say, okay, let me pronounce the Greek, pater. Does that satisfy you? We know what the word patria means because we have a good word for it in English. It's fatherhood. <laughs> so why don't they translate it fatherhood instead of lineage? Well, it's because most of the translation was done at a time where there was absolutely no threat to fatherhood, none. Everybody knew that fatherhood carried authority, leadership. And so they didn't keep their eye on the ball of that part of, are you ready for this? The male semantic meaning component. Okay, you all with me? This is how linguists speak about translation. You have to try to keep all the meaning components of a word if you're going to do good translation. Well, they weren't worried about keeping the male semantic meaning component because the entire world understood that the father was the head of the home, that the father was the head of the nation, that the fathers were the head of the church, and that they had responsibility and that they had authority. Okay, but what about us today? Come on. We should be jealous for the meanings of Scripture that have been left behind. And it's so easy to translate this in a way that actually communicates the meaning. If it says patria, we could translate it patriarchate, which is an archaism, but it might be instructive. A patriarchate is the boundaries of the governance of a patriarch. 
Or we could simply say fatherhood. And then you listen to it and you say, he, Joseph, was of the house and fatherhood of David. Is that really difficult? Is it really difficult to exchange a word referring to the line of David for a word referring to the fatherhood of David? What I live to see before I die is a translation of the Bible that actually is helpful. That in a day when everybody hates fathers and makes fun of them, that we would be particularly careful to include in the English the things that help us to repent. Does that make sense to you? I don't think it's too much to ask. And I think all of us should feel the same way. Why? Well, because words have meaning. And so David, it says in verse 4, was of the oikos and patria. I'm not David. But Joseph was of the oikos and patria of David. And then it goes on and it says this. It says, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, it calls her his wife, which would be appropriate for somebody who was betrothed or espoused. But she's not his full wife yet. But she's great with child. You should feel the shame of this. Right? Do you know one of the things that has happened in our nation, because over 50% of kids grow up without a dad, is that we've lost the concept of bastardy. We've lost the notion of the shame of being fatherless. We've lost the notion of the shame of a woman who's great with child and not married. But how on earth do you understand the entire context of the birth of Jesus and the pregnancy of Mary without recovering that? Come on. This is a completely embarrassing circumstance. If you don't feel that, you're cruel. Because how can you have compassion on Mary at this time unless you feel the shame? And so cultivate your ability to feel shame, or you won't understand Scripture. Okay? So here's Mary, great with child. Great. And she's not married. So then the question is, why is she with Joseph? Because normally a betrothed woman is not with her husband traveling. I mean, would you let your daughter travel with the man she's engaged to? I hope not. So then the question is, why is Mary traveling with Joseph? Why? Why would she be taking a three-day trip to a place where she will not have a place to rest her head when she is at full term? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know why, but I have a theory. And my theory is really simple. It's that Joseph loved Mary. I think he loved her. And I think Joseph did not want 
to be separated from her when she went through her suffering. I think he was determined to be with the woman he loved. Right? Doesn't that make sense? He was such a prince of a man. You know, the real men are not men that call attention to themselves. The real men are the men that never call attention to themselves. And boy, there's never been a man like Joseph. Nothing about him calls attention to him unless you're watching the safety and provision for Jesus and his mother. And then he shines. He shines. She was great with child, verse 5. And then verse 6 says what? Verse 6 says, And so it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Um, there are some historical records of the early church that indicated it was probably a cave because, uh, and that's actually where shrines were erected. We don't know what it was. We also don't know if Bethlehem actually had a motel. Um, the word also could mean that uh, there was no extra uh, uh, guest bedroom. So it could be that there was just no vacant room. It's hard to imagine this not shaming Bethlehem because, my goodness, wouldn't most of us give our, our master bedroom to a woman who's at full term? Right? But somehow she's out there in the cave where the animals stay. So it's a very, very uh, poignant, tender, sensitive, masculine, poignant, tender, sensitive, masculine scene that the physician paints for us. And so guess what? Mary is absolutely safe. (laughs) Okay? Now, what's the application of this to us? Well, um, If you think about Caesar Augustus, the one thing Caesar Augustus was absolutely certain of was that he was an agent. As a matter of fact, he in this scene would describe his role as being the active agent. He would talk about his self-determination, his what? Quote, decree, unquote. There would be Everything would about be about him, the decisions he made, the leadership he exercised, the governance financing he needed. Everything would have been about Caesar Augustus. But Caesar Augustus is just a footnote to the story to explain why Jesus was in Bethlehem, therefore his, his mother, and therefore her betrothed husband. That's all he has. So what does this mean for us? What this means is that there's nothing in your life, not one tiny part of your life that God has not perfectly orchestrated for his own glory and those of you who belong to him for your well-being. Those of you who do not belong to God, everything is orchestrated for the moment 
when you will be consumed by his wrath. And he's not apologetic about that. And so you come to him. You come to him. Because he's serious business. He has no problem making Caesar Augustus do what he wants. And so he has no problem judging you. Okay? But let's come back to those of us with faith. True faith. You think of all the different circumstances that were orchestrated so that Jesus was where he should be at the time he should be, okay? And God ordained every single one of them. And it really didn't matter what Caesar Augustus wanted. It may have been that Caesar Augustus got up in the morning and his financial advisor told him he had to send everybody to their homeland to be taxed, and Caesar was furious because he wanted to go to war. He didn't want everybody traveling to go get taxed. We don't know what happened, except that the decree came from him and that that put Jesus where he was supposed to be. And so you look at your life, you look at when you get married, you look at who your husband is, you look at who your children are and what their names are and what their different personalities are, you look at the home you live in, you look at every single thing, your job, you look at your co-workers, you look at, <laughs> okay, so, so this morning... I got to think about this. It was in the office here when I came in the office this morning. I pulled my adapter for the computer out of my briefcase and I went to plug it in and there was a, uh, a knot, a, a knot in the cord. And I went to try to undo the knot and I couldn't get the uh, adapter at the end of the cord up to undo it. Why? It got stuck on the handle of a, of a drawer on my desk. And you know me, what happened? I got angry. Who was I angry at? Not myself. I mean, sometimes that happens. And I immediately realized that that was God's dispensation to me and that I was really angry at God. There was nobody else in the room to get angry. I mean, if David Carell had been there, I could have gotten angry at David, but he wasn't actually in there. Every single thing in your life is under the authority of your Creator. And this includes your sin. And you say, oh, you're making God out to be the author of sin. No, I am not doing that. God is not the author of sin. Every single thing in your life is under the control of God. And if you have the eyes of faith to look at your sin in your life, what you will see is that your sin redounds to the glory of God. And you say, no, no, no. And I say, oh, yes, yes, yes. Think about it for a second and think of how your own sin has allowed you to have compassion on other people. Where does that come from, Satan? No, it comes from God. And so God takes not just our good intentions, but our bad intentions, not just our obedience, but our disobedience. And everything he does, he perfectly lines up to bring himself glory. And one day, those who have, been, who have said no to him, they themselves 
will give him glory by suffering the just punishment of their rebellion. Okay? And so this should be a comfort to us. God is God. And our lives, when we live, when we die, you remember the Bible says that every single day appointed for us will come to pass. Before we're ever born, God knows how many minutes, hours, seconds he's allotted to us. And that's why Stonewall Jackson said, hey, the safest place I can be is out at the front of the battlefield because I'm not going to die until God decrees that I die. And so sure enough, he was out at the front of the battlefield and he got shot by friendly fire (laughs) and he died. (laughs) And yet that wasn't a mistake. Do you see this? And your life isn't a mistake. And listen, the person you married is not a mistake. It's one of those godless things I hear sometimes is people explaining that a couple shouldn't have gotten married. How does that help anything to talk about what might have been when you have taken vows until death? And so I want to encourage all of you that God knows every single detail down to the frustration of that adapter this morning for me and the character issue I have. And everything is quietly marching to the end of all time. And someday we will see why everything that's in our life is in our life. We don't know it now. But we can be confident when we're able to look back and see Caesar Augustus just, you know, doing exactly what God wants him to do. We can be confident that our lives also are the same. That God will bring himself glory through our successes and through our failures and the failures of our children, okay? And so be tender with yourself. (laughs) I know that that can be abused today, (laughs) you know? Imagine me saying, be tender with yourself. But listen, you be tender with your wife and your husband. You be tender with the failure of the people that you love because God's not bothered It's not that he is okay with sin, but he has no problem restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. Okay? 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 No bitterness, because bitterness is denying God's goodness. God can take care of himself, and he can take care of his reputation with you. Okay, so you give him your failures and trust him with them, okay? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you do control all things for your glory. We pray, Father, that you will help us to have faith and to obey you. And we pray, Lord, that you will cover over our failures and sins and rebellion with your grace and that we will see that you do receive glory And we pray that we will repent and continue to live by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.